This episode of Navarra Live is brought to you by listeners like you. Thank you. Good evening and welcome to this Friday evening's edition of Navarra Live. My name is Aaron Bastani. Tonight, I have the immense satisfaction of being joined by the GOAT, Ash Sarkar. How are we? I'm okay. It's been a horrible week of news and I'm glad at the very least that I get to unpack it all with you. I'm glad to. I have to say, actually, this has probably been the hardest week for me in this job ever, personally, politically. Uh, it's been incredibly tough. Um, obviously, my thoughts to everyone affected by this and to everyone who feels the same way that Ash and I do, but also my, 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 my feelings, my compassion, my sentiments are particularly with Britain's Jews. Um, Shabbat Shalom. Uh, this is the end of a very tough week for you, your friends, your families. Um, and I hope brighter days are around the corner. Uh, coming up later tonight, we discuss the latest from the UK government's position on events in Israel-Palestine. We'll also look at other European nations and the different reactions from their leaders. And a former Labour staffer has made an interesting admission about the 2017 general election. Stay tuned for all of that. First story. Israel has ordered 1.1 million Palestinians to leave northern Gaza. This was the moment the Israeli Air Force dropped thousands of leaflets over the territory, instructing Palestinians in the north of Gaza to move to the south within 24 hours. In a joint press conference with US Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin, Israel's Minister of Defense, Yoav Gallant, gave this justification for the order. I would like to remind all of us what happened less than a week ago. 1,200 Israelis were brutally murdered raped, uh, burned alive, kids were tied one to the other and shot at their hand. This is Hamas. This is the ISIS of Gaza. And as the secretary said, they took evil to another level. That's first issue. Second, Israel never and ever will not shoot civilians in purpose. Therefore, we are asking all the civilians in Gaza City to go south of Gaza. And the reason is that because we don't want to harm them. The camouflage of the terrorist is the civil population. Therefore, we need to separate them. So those who want to save their life, please go south. We are going to destroy Hamas infrastructures Hamas headquarters, Hamas military establishment, and take this phenomena out of Gaza and out of the earth. They cannot live among human civilized people. The order follows a week of action by Israel against Gaza in retaliation for Hamas attacks on Israeli civilians, including the elderly and children. The death toll from that brutal assault now stands at 1,300 Israelis, with a further 100 kidnapped and held by Hamas at locations inside Gaza. With around 300,000 Israeli troops already stationed along Gaza's border, Israel's evacuation order is the strongest indication yet that a ground offensive is imminent. But Hamas has described the Israeli commander's, quote, fake propaganda, telling the Palestinians to stay put. Despite that, thousands of Palestinians are now fleeing south. But extensive shelling of the Strip has made travel difficult, with roads and buildings across the territory bombed. 
In the last six days, Israel has dropped over 6,000 bombs on the Gaza Strip, one of the most densely populated regions in the world. 1,800 Palestinians have now died in the onslaught, around a quarter of them children. Over 7,000 people have been injured and 420,000 have been displaced. An extraordinary number. Gaza is also under Israeli siege, with food, water and fuel being withheld. And it's also without electricity, after its only power station ran out of fuel earlier this week. The area that Israel has ordered to be cleared is about a third of the Gaza Strip and holds half of the territory's 2.4 million residents. It's also where heavily populated zones are located, including Gaza City, home to 600,000 people, and the Jabalia refugee camp, which homes over 100,000 displaced people too. There are also at least six hospitals in the region affected, with the World Health Organization saying it will be impossible to move severely injured patients and describing the order as, quote, a death sentence. The United Nations has also responded to the order saying this. The United Nations considers it impossible for such a movement to take place without devastating humanitarian consequences. The UN strongly appeals for any such order, if confirmed, to be rescinded, avoiding what could transform what is already a tragedy into a calamitous situation. The Norwegian Refugee Council has gone even further than that, saying this. The Israeli military demand that 1.2 million civilians in northern Gaza relocate to its south within 24 hours, absent of any guarantees of safety or return. This would amount to the war crime of forcible transfer. It must be reversed. According to the United Nations, forced transfer that takes place in the context of a widespread attack on the civilian population is not only a war crime, but a crime against humanity. And while Israel officially denies targeting civilians, its president, Isaac Herzog, is holding all Palestinians responsible for the brutal attacks on Israeli civilians carried out by Hamas. He said this, It's an entire nation out there that is responsible. It's not true, this rhetoric about civilians being not aware, not involved. It's absolutely not true. They could have risen up. They could have fought against that evil regime which took over Gaza in a coup d'etat. Ash. That is a shocking quote from such a senior politician, isn't it? Can you just unpack what that means for us here? The idea that all civilians of a nation are responsible for what is done in their name, either by a government or a militant group, is indistinguishable from the logic of Osama bin Laden or indeed Hamas themselves. It's this idea which is incredibly prevalent amongst the Israeli government at the moment, that war crimes are legitimate in the face of legitimate grievance. Now, that is not how international law works. And I think for many of us, we would say that's not how morality works either. But this idea that there is no such thing as an innocent civilian, if they're Palestinian, it is, I think, once more, part of the language and the rhetoric which can form the basis for genocide, if not genocide, ethnic cleansing. Gallant earlier this week talked about the people in Gaza as human animals, that a complete siege of the territory was necessary because these people are human animals. That's the kind of dehumanizing language which wouldn't be out of place 
ahead of the Rwandan genocide. Indeed, it wouldn't have been out of place in 1930s Germany. This is, I think, really serious and alarming that you have at every level of Israeli politics, the idea being incubated and promoted that there is no such thing as an innocent Palestinian, a Palestinian who should be safe from military action, should be safe from violence. And one of the things that I wrote earlier today in an article that you can read at Navarra Media is that this forcible transfer of over a million Gazans, it is a second Nakba. Now, for those of our audience who are unfamiliar with this term, Nakba, it means the catastrophe. It's the word that Palestinians use to refer to the forced expulsions of 1948 that accompanied the establishment of the State of Israel. Now, many Gazans, up to two-thirds, are descended from internally displaced Palestinians. Many of those people would have lost their homes, perhaps even seen their villages raised to the ground in the events of 1948 to 1949. In 1948, it was 700,000 Palestinians who were forcibly displaced. This would be well over a million. I think I'm correct in saying it would be one of the largest forcible transfers in human history. And the scale of that in terms of being a real, you know, just an abhorrent breach of international law, um, I think it really can't be overstated. Now, the IDF have made it clear that if Gazans flee south towards Rafah, that they cannot return without the express permission of the Israeli government and the Israeli armed forces. So there is no guarantee of the right of return, and there isn't even the guarantee of safe passage. Gaza City is still being bombarded. Rafah, the Rafah crossing, which is the border with Egypt, has been bombed repeatedly over the last week. There is no safe way for those who are injured, who are currently lying in those overcrowded hospitals in the north of the Gaza Strip to make it safely to the south. Neither is there a way to safely transport the elderly and disabled people. So what you have is a context where there is no safe passage for Gazan civilians. There is no right of return for Gazan civilians. And for many people, there is simply not the option to leave Gaza City. So what we're seeing from the IDF, from the Israeli government, is the telegraphing of a war crime, saying we are going to commit this war crime, civilian lives will be in danger because we will deem them as having not taken the appropriate steps to protect themselves. But there is no way for Gazans to keep themselves safe in this context of total warfare from the Israeli state. And what is most disgusting of all is that it is receiving the explicit support of Western countries. Our country, the UK, has said that it is absolutely right 
for this forcible transfer to take place. We have given a carte blanche to war crimes. And I think that when it comes to talking about Putin in Ukraine, we will no longer have a leg to stand on. We will no longer have the right to talk about the need to uphold international law or indeed the rules of war. Yeah, I think that's such an important point about Ukraine, Ash. I mean, if anyone looks at pictures of Gaza in the last few days, I mean, it seems reminiscent of multiple places in Ukraine, uh, multiple cities. I mean, it looks identical. Uh, I'd also say, going back to the point that was made by Isaac Herzog, who is the president of Israel, a ceremonial role, a bit like Ireland or, or Germany. This is a man, by the way, who comes from the progressive side of Israeli politics. He was a Labour politician. This is, this is the sister party of the Labour Party in this country. This is not somebody on the ultra-nationalist right. So I think that really gives you a flavour of, of what's going on right now with regards to elite Israeli politics. Deeply concerning. And this idea that civilians are a legitimate target because of the actions of a particular faction within them or because of their government, that is literally the same argument that terrorists make. That is the same argument that Al-Qaeda would have made. And I'm not, I'm not trying to in any way draw an equivalence between these two things or say they're the same, because I think those kinds of comparisons aren't particularly helpful. They make things more ambiguous than they do illuminate. But that is exactly the same logic made by people who say, well, we have to hit America. Well, why not the American government? They're the people making the decisions. Well, if the people had a problem with those governing figures or the agenda of their government, they'd rise up against them. It doesn't work like that. And it gives rise to the most abominable, unforgivable actions, which it seems Israel is on the step of doing. Uh, going on, conditions in Gaza are deteriorating quickly with international agencies warning the territory is on the brink of a devastating humanitarian crisis, potentially a war crime. The forcible displacement of over a million people in northern Gaza will only speed up that process. A spokesperson for the Palestinian Red Crescent had this message for the world. Urgent appeal to humanity. The Palestine Red Crescent Society calls on the world leaders and the international community to intervene immediately to prevent a humanitarian catastrophe that is unfolding right now. The order from Israel for more than 1.2 million people in Gaza to evacuate is shocking and beyond belief. The whole people in Gaza feel that the world has turned their back on them. We don't have the means to evacuate the sick and the wounded people in our hospitals, or the elderly and the disabled. There are no safe place in Gaza. Humanity is on the line. The world must intervene to stop this catastrophe unfold in the next few hours. War is not the answer. Killing civilians and destroying civilians' infrastructure is not the answer. All parties must abide the laws of war and protect the civilian population. Elizabeth El Nakler is the mother-in-law of Scottish First Minister Hamza Yusuf. She is currently trapped in Gaza after visiting relatives there. This will be my last video. Everybody from Gaza is moving towards where we are. One million people, no food, no water and still they're bombing them as they leave, we're going to put them. But my thought is, 
all these people in the hospital cannot be evacuated. Where's humanity? Where's people's hearts in the world to let this happen in this day and age? May God help us. Goodbye. Just astonishing. And I think it really conveys the extent of what's going on. Gaza, in terms of its proportions, is really the full extent of East London. Um, if you go from sort of inner London all the way out, uh, and it has a population approximately the size of Wales. So if you imagine the logistics of what these people now have to do, an extraordinary number of people in a tiny space, it defies belief. And uh, many Western governments have given it the green light. Uh, this BBC report gives an insight into the extent of the devastation in Gaza. My name is Adnan al a reporter for BBC Arabic and a resident of Gaza. Here in Ishifa Hospital, bodies lay everywhere. The injured scream for help. You can never forget these sounds. Among the dead and wounded, my cameraman Mahmoud has seen his friend Malik. Malik has managed to survive, but his family have not. This is my local hospital. Inside are my friends, my neighbors. This is my community. Today has been one of the most difficult days in my career. I have seen things I can't never unsee. This young girl's home was destroyed. Her relatives have been killed and she needs help. My daughter is the same age. I want to give her a hug. In the chaos, we try to understand what is going on. A mother called Um Muhammad sits next to the bodies of her family. We were sleeping and they bombarded our house like everyone else. We don't have any resistance fighters in our building. All the building is full of residents. 120 people live there. The corridors of Ishifa Hospital are filled with bodies. The more can no longer coop. The bodies of the dead have to be laid on the floor outside the hospital entrance. You never want to become the story. Yet in my city, I feel helpless, as the dead were given no dignity, and the injured are left in pain. Adnan al-Bursh, BBC News, Gaza. And even as Palestinians flee northern Gaza, the bombs keep falling. This Reuters footage shows the aftermath of a strike on a major road in Gaza City. Cars were hit by an Israeli bomb as they attempted to flee the city. In other words, to do what the Israeli government is asking them to do. It's now also emerged that forcible removal may not be the only war crime Israel is committing in Gaza. This video purports to show the use of white phosphorus munitions over Gaza City. White phosphorus is a toxic, wax-like substance that burns at 800 degrees Celsius, hot enough to melt metal. When it makes contact with human skin, it can burn it down to the bone. And when absorbed by the bone, it causes multiple organ failure. A human rights watch have now analysed videos taken in Gaza City and along the Israel-Lebanon border and have accused Israel of using the substance in densely populated civilian areas. The organisation's Middle East and North Africa director, Lama Faki, said this. 
Any time that white phosphorus is used in crowded civilian areas, it poses a high risk of excruciating burns and lifelong suffering. White phosphorus is unlawfully indiscriminate when airburst in populated urban areas, when it can burn down houses and cause egregious harm to civilians. To avoid civilian harm, Israel should stop using white phosphorus in populated areas. Parties to the conflict should be doing everything they can to spare civilians from further suffering. The Israeli Defense Force have denied using white phosphorus in Gaza. Joining me now is Assad Raymond from War on Want, a UK-based human rights organization with decades of work supporting human rights organizations in Palestine. Assad, thanks for joining us this evening. Thank you, Aaron. First question, obviously, you've got lots of connections, lots of contacts on the ground. What are human rights organizations in Gaza saying to you and your colleagues at the moment? Well, I think it was best summed up by actually what Elizabeth said, where is the humanity? Um, and it's not just, of course, uh, Palestinian human rights organizations. I, I literally cannot even begin to describe what every organization, human rights organization, every aid organization is reporting, all of them reporting, not just their, uh, their colleagues in Palestine are basically huddling together, saying goodbye to their friends and families. They don't know if they're going to be alive in the next hour or by the next day. And as your um, pictures were showing, we're seeing whole families, literally every person, every child, every parent, grandparent, aunt, uncles, are being pulled from destroyed buildings, killed in, in what are indiscriminate uh, bombing by one of the most powerful armies in the world, which has made it explicitly clear that its goal is to pulverize Gaza. Um, it is beyond uh, it's beyond shocking, and I I was I, um, let me just quote you one message from a Palestinian doctor. He said, uh, "If I die, remember that I we were individuals, humans. We had names, dreams, achievements." And our only fault was that we were classified as inferior. And that is the very, very strong message that is coming out from Palestinians or Palestinian organizations is, where is the international community? How, why are they not stopping what is clearly war crimes, what are clearly calls for genocide, for ethnic cleansing in Gaza? And now that's being echoed by Israeli organizations themselves, Israeli human rights organizations. And again, let me just quote one that message this morning. I'm appealing to you. This is an emergency. This is a genocidal call for vengeance and wiping Gaza off the map. This is a crime against humanity. The moral fabric and reputations of, of governments are at stake. Israel does not have the right to commit war crimes or crimes against humanity. Please do all you can now to intervene. It's just heartbreaking. How unprecedented is this, Assad? Because, you know, for people... For people who aren't, you know, watching the news 24-7, they know something appalling happened last weekend, and that most certainly was unprecedented. Uh, people are, of course, much more familiar with significant numbers of casualties in Gaza. That's just a fact. It's empirical. So in terms of what we're seeing now, the deaths over the last 72 hours, is there something like this in recent history? Or are we, are we really looking, I mean, it was referred to as the second Nakba by Ash a moment ago, are we really looking at something unprecedented in Palestinian history since 1967 or maybe even since 1948? Absolutely. This, uh, as Ash was describing it, Palestinians are describing this as the second Nakba. I mean, the forcible displacement, transfer 
of over 1.1 million uh, Palestinians. And let me just say what where the Israelis are, ask, are have said people need to move from is really the heart of Gaza. It's where all the schools, hospitals, the biggest hospital are based, where all the civilian infrastructure is uh, and what they intend to raise to the ground. So this is... Um, Unprecedented. It's half the Palestinian population. We've got to remember, of course, this is a Palestinian population that was ethnically cleansed 75 years ago and, of course, forced as refugees into this tiny strip of land. But 50 years have been subject to a brutal occupation, of which 16 years has been total siege. And then, of course, in this last few days, we've seen air or water, medicines, food, electricity being deprived. I don't think we've ever seen this combination of the deliberate uh, and, I think, genocidal intent in terms of around ethnic cleansing and, and not hidden. I mean, that's, I think, the most striking thing about this is that we are seeing it unfold on our television screens that Israel is not hiding what it's doing. It's saying it very, very clearly and it's saying it with the support of many Western leaders who are, who are either staying silent or actively greenlighting what is taking place. And I said one final question. Uh, Ash mentioned a moment ago that there is no guarantee that people will have a will have a right of return to northern Gaza. And of course, this this is something that the Palestinian people have been through before. Um, what are people telling you from Gaza, human rights organisations, and so on? H how much faith do they have that they will be permitted at a certain date in the future? to be able to return to the north of the Gaza Strip? Absolutely no faith. Look, I mean, the Israeli government has made it absolutely clear. You have had Israeli ministers who have said, our intention is to turn, well, you had the prime minister saying, our intention is to turn Gaza into a deserted island. You've had ministers saying, our goal is to wipe out the Palestinians. You've had other ministers saying that the goal is to, is to basically cleanse and push out the Palestinians for once and for all, out of Gaza, uh, there is absolutely no guarantees. Look, the Palestinians have illegal, under international law, right to return as refugees to their to the homes of which they were forcibly, forcibly displaced. They've been prevented from doing that for 75 years. Are we genuinely believing that the Israelis are going to allow anybody to return? What they are doing is creating material facts on the ground. And these are the same material facts that are on the ground which are being created in the West Bank as well, which isn't really talked about at the moment, but every single uh, checkpoint is on lockdown. The Israeli state has been distributing weapons to arm to settlers, to extremist settlers. Extremist settlers have been attacking Palestinians. Uh, uh, you may have seen images earlier of, of settlers who had killed uh Palestinians and then went back to the funeral of those Palestinians and attacked and killed two more people at that funeral. We're seeing this is uh, it, it, it is the, the 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 dream or the vision of of the many of the far right Israeli ministers and and a, a part of the population, which is a greater Israel without the Palestinians, and and that's only possible, of course, if you can 
dehumanise the Palestinian people. And I think we've all seen how our politicians and many in the media have been party to that, and it's utterly chilling and frankly racist. And, I, and we all know, again, that any academic who has been studying genocide will tell you how this dehumanisation has become a feature of every genocide. And so, absolutely, I think this is both unprecedented in what is taking place, but not unprecedented in terms of our responsibility as the UK. I was mind reminded, you know, back listening to much of this rhetoric about, you know, what's the justification for this. Um, and Israel, of course, has talked about it as this was their 9-11. And we all know that what happened after 9-11, the US and the UK, Bush and Blair, shredded international law, ripped up human rights. We had the destruction of Iraq, over a million people paid the, the heaviest price with their lives. We saw people being tortured, secret camps, we saw Guantanamo, we saw Abu Ghraib, we saw all of these things. And of course, that was done with the express uh, uh, complicity of the UK, of members of parliament and, and ministers. And what we're seeing is a very, very similar thing actually happening. To have the Defence Secretary, Grant Sharps, explicitly say that he supports, uh, uh, and the UK government supports the, uh, the Israel's plan in terms of the evacuation. And in fact, is ordering uh, a warship. Um, and he said, you know, we support Israel's evacuation order and its military activities. We're going to dispatch a UK military package to the region to deliver practical support to Israel. And of course, uh, from the leader of the opposition, Sakir Starmer, we haven't had a single word being uttered today about this, although over the last few days, as you know, that both of them, uh, both him and the shadow attorney general, both human rights lawyers, both attempted to deny that war crimes were being taken place, even though they know that the deliberate targeting of civilians, deliberate targeting of civilian infrastructure, the express of um, the the uh, bans on food, water, uh, food, water, electricity, medicine are all war crimes. Uh, they couldn't utter that word. They couldn't bring themselves to actually recognise the reality in it. I think it's utterly shameful that the UN human rights officials had to remind British politicians and say, you cannot do this, you cannot say this. You know full well these are human rights violations. And I think the the parallel between, you know, when we know what how the same politicians responded to similar situations in Ukraine and, of course, in Syria, where they condemned the same approach and called them war crimes, and, in fact, asked the International Criminal Court to open investigations and bring those responsible to, uh, to justice. They, the UK has actively blocked similar investigations into Israel, and so we know that Israel acts with impunity. So I have to say that if the Palestinians are forcibly displaced from the north of Gaza or out of Gaza totally, um, they will never be allowed back in. And, and there are many analysts who say that one of the strategies is basically to, to pressure the Egyptian authorities to open the border at Rafah, to displace the Palestinians into the Sinai and say, well, now it's an Arab problem. It's an Egyptian problem. It's no longer our problem. And, you know, as you know, Egypt is in a dictatorship. It's in dire economic trouble. Um, and from what we understand, lots of pressures are also being brought on Egypt. So I, I, I think we're seeing something quite unprecedented uh, unfold in front of our eyes. That was Asad Rehman from A War on Want. 
really, really informative. Just to go over a few things that he said, Gaza, the Gaza Strip is 2.4 million people. They have no way of leaving. The only way they can leave is if they die. Or, of course, if they go into Egypt, which is the point that Assad left us on. And additionally, he compared it to 9-11. We don't really talk about this enough, but the United States suffered an abject act of barbarity on September 11th, 2001. And its political leaders proceeded over the next several decades, over the next 20 years, frankly, to make a series of decisions which made the United States and the world less safe. I personally think that is now being repeated. If you're watching this and you like what we're doing, if you think we need a new media for a different kind of politics, if you think we need a people-powered media, then support our work. Go to navarramedia.com forward slash support, make a one-off payment, or you can make a a monthly payment, become a supporter. That's what we ideally would like you to do if you can afford to do so. And if you can't, that's not a problem either. Uh, the link for that is in the description. Help us build people-powered media. Go to navarramedia.com forward slash support. Uh, let's quickly turn now to the international reaction to Israel's order to evacuate North Gaza. U.S. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin is in Israel, where he held a joint press conference with Israeli Defense Minister Yoav Gallant. Here's what he said. U.S. security assistance to Israel will flow in at the speed of war. And as this harrowing week draws to a close, and as Shabbat draws near, we stand together and we stand strong. The United States has Israel's back, and that is not negotiable, and it never will be. And after this terrible week, I wish you and all the people of Israel Shabbat Shalom. Thank you. A Lebanese-based paramilitary group, Hezbollah, has also responded to the order. Its deputy chief, Naim Qasem, has made a public statement saying this. The behind-the-scenes calls with us by great powers, Arab countries, envoys of the United Nations, directly and indirectly asking us not to interfere in the battle, will have no effect. We as Hezbollah contribute to the confrontation and will contribute to it within our vision and our plan. We follow the moves of the enemy and we're fully ready. When the time comes for any action, we will carry it out. There are fears that the involvement of Hezbollah could open up a second front in the war to Israel's north. A huge demonstration has also taken place in Baghdad, where tens of thousands gathered in support of Palestine. Shiite militias in Iraq have also threatened to target U.S. assets in the region should Washington become involved in the conflict. And in other parts of Israel-Palestine, confrontations between the Israeli armed forces and Palestinians have broken out. In the West Bank and other Palestinian territory within Israel's borders, fighting broke out at a Gaza solidarity protest. Nine Palestinians have so far been killed by Israeli security forces in the West Bank since the war began, with dozens injured in confrontations. Ash, I really want to pick your brains on this. We're not talking about it enough. Typically, the UK media isn't really offering wider context. Huge protests, huge. We said tens of thousands. We can't corroborate the numbers. It's hundreds of thousands from what somebody has told me. Huge protests in Tehran, in Baghdad, threats by Houthi militias in Yemen, um, we, of course, have Hezbollah in, in Lebanon and Hamas, uh, those who remain in, in, in Gaza. That is a very sophisticated and difficult challenge for Israel to respond to. What are the possibilities here of this becoming a wider conflict? I think we're already seeing the beginnings of 
this conflict spilling out across borders. Israel is conducting airstrikes in Lebanon, it says, to uh, combat Hezbollah militants. What has happened today is that an Israeli airstrike in southern Lebanon has killed a Reuters journalist and injured others. So not only is this yet another example of the IDF being involved in the killing of a journalist, of course, we've seen the deaths of journalists in airstrikes in the Gaza Strip. Uh, Shireen, of course, was, was killed not that long ago in the West Bank. So already Israeli military action is occurring outside of the borders of historic Palestine. In terms of the the wider Arab context, there is a really big divide between what the populations in countries like Egypt, uh, many of the Gulf states, are thinking and feeling and on the streets for, and the leadership of those nations. It was a Trump-era policy which has continued under Biden that the strategy with Israel and Palestine was to normalize relationships between Israel and Arab dictatorships, the Gulf monarchies, regardless of whether or not that's what their populations wanted. And the quid pro quo was, we'll normalize relationships, we'll open up trading ties, and you ignore the plight of the Palestinians. So you ended up with a further marginalization of the Palestinian cause. I think that's one of the factors which contributed to the atrocities carried out by Hamas just under a week ago. Um, And it has also meant that there is, I think, an unwillingness to see some of the, you know, really strong criticism and outcry from, in particular, the Gulf monarchies that that you may have seen in previous years. Uh, Egypt have not opened the Rafah crossing. It's, of course, unusable at the moment because it was uh, bombed by repeated Israeli airstrikes. Um, but I think that there is there is an unwillingness there. Um, there isn't solidarity between uh, Arab governments and the Palestinians. So there is, of course, an awful lot of solidarity between Arab populations and the Palestinian people. Just on a different note, Aaron, there's some breaking news at the moment. It's being reported by the Press Association. Hamas have said that 70 Palestinian civilians, mostly women and children, were killed in an Israeli airstrike as they attempted to flee south from Gaza City. So if this is true, and I'm caveating that because, of course, we wouldn't consider Hamas an impartial source. If this is true, it represents, I think, some of the worst fears that many Palestinians have had since receiving the so-called evacuation order, that they've received an order uh, to flee Gaza City without any safe passage to do so and no guarantee that they won't be hit by Israeli airstrikes if they attempt to leave uh, in convoys. So really, really troubling reports emerging from Gaza City right now. Um, and I think that the international community, which has co-signed 
the Israeli order to forcible transfer is as culpable as the IDF in this atrocity if it's if it's the case that it's happened. Yeah, I think a few other outlets have also gone with that story. So it seems reasonable to uh, believe it. Though, of course, like you say, we wouldn't take Hamas's words at face value. On Radio 4's Today programme, Michelle Hussain pressed Defence Secretary Grant Shapps for the UK's position on the forcible transfer of more than a million Palestinians out of northern Gaza. In recent times, there has never been an order of this kind. It amounts to moving, to, to wanting the population of half of the territory of Gaza not to be there anymore. Does the UK government support that order? So we've never been in these times in as much as we've never seen a country have 1,300 people slaughtered by terrorists. If you scale that up to brilliant Britain size, it would be thousands of Brits uh, slaughtered by uh, terrorists uh, coming into the country and doing that. And you'd expect Britain, and in this case, you'd expect Israel to have the right to defend itself. Now, if those terrorists then hide themselves from the populations, it is right to give that population uh, notice so that they can move. So and we support them then. You you think it is possible for a million people to be moved within 24 hours, and you support the UK government? You support the Israeli government in issuing this order? Well, I think it's absolutely right that the Israeli government are providing uh, warning to citizens. That's not, uh, I'm afraid, a luxury. No, about the, the order Israelis itself. Just tell us what a... the UK government thinks of this order. Does I, it? I just, so, I just, I just, so we support just it, right? Right. Okay. Just so, just just so everyone's absolutely clear, the UK government supports Israel in ordering a million people to move out of half of Gaza in 24 hours. The, the UK government supports Israel in providing advance notice uh, that Hamas are hiding within a civilian population, where, by the way, they're also holding a capture of those people who they kidnapped at the weekend. You're not and answering my question, so I'm, I'm still not sure whether the UK government supports this order of the Israeli military. I think you're literally the only person listening to this who would be confused by this. I've just said that the UK government supports Israel's right both to defend itself and in this uh, way, the, and that Israel is providing advance warning of military action in order for people to move themselves out of the way. Ash, before I go to you, this is something I've been thinking about a lot, which is that repeatedly we hear from British politicians. The IDF, the Israelis, are so effective in terms of their use of power, their use of violence, that there will be a clear minimization of deaths to innocent people. Are they really that on top of things when last Saturday happened an appalling act of barbarity, which they apparently had no forewarning about? They even ignored warnings from the Egyptians about what was about to happen 72 hours ahead of Saturday. But it's the same security apparatus which is going to so competently precision strike, just Hamas strikers. Nobody else is going to die. They didn't know any of this was happening a week ago, but now they're so adept that no innocent people will get killed. That strikes me as patent nonsense. Ash, what did you think of this exchange more, more generally? Well, just to respond to your original point about, you know, the technological brilliance of the IDF and, you know, their, their laudable moral restraint. If 
they've got the capacity to be so precise. Why is it that 19 members of the same Palestinian family were wiped out in an airstrike on a refugee camp in Gaza? Why have there been airstrikes on residential tower blocks and some Palestinians reporting that airstrikes took place before they received any warning from the IDF to evacuate. By the way, the warning to evacuate means that you've got 10 minutes sometimes less. Can you imagine? Can you imagine being in your home with your family, being told you've got 10 minutes before your home will be destroyed? What would you take with you? How would you feel? What about people who have disabilities or are elderly who can't evacuate in time? There have been reports of people who, in evacuating, forgot to take clothes with them, tried to get back to get some of those basic necessities that you'd need to survive fleeing your home and were then subsequently killed in the airstrike. So if that sounds like precision targeting to you, it makes it worse because it means that there is a degree of callousness, um, a, a, a premeditation in the killing of civilians on the part of the IDF. Um, in terms of, of the exchange more broadly, I think that this is where you see the obscenity of what's going on within our politics at the moment, which is you've got this laundering of war crimes. The Israeli government have announced their intention to commit a war crime. Uh, forcible transfers it, are considered a crime against humanity. And what passes for an excuse is, well, they gave warning to do so. Now, I recall the Irish Republican Army giving warnings ahead of their bombings. That wasn't an excuse that the government accepted, which would therefore have meant that those bombings were lawful. It's not something which in any other context would be considered an appropriate excuse. And I'm glad that Michelle Hussein uh, pushed and said, well, what do you think of the order? And all anyone can fall back on is the same old tired platitudes of Israel's right to defend itself. Israel, like any other state, has a lawful right to self-defense, but that right does not include war crimes. No state, no organization has the right to commit war crimes, no matter how much they have been or claim to be provoked. And it is disgusting to me. It makes me feel deeply ashamed that our country's government is co-signing, I think, what will be looked back on as one of the great crimes against humanity, that not only did we turn a blind eye to the real human cost that some of the most powerful people in the world, some of the most influential people in talking about a rules-based international order, waved it on through? Yeah, I think this idea of um, proportionality as well, you know, it's equivalent to somebody um, losing a few members of their family. They're murdered, obviously an appalling thing. And then identifying the neighborhood of where the murderer comes from without knowing them. And killing the entire neighborhood. You have a right to seek justice through lawful means. Of course you do. You do not have a right to, you know, break the law in a way that is completely disproportionate to what's happened. Um, and again, what happened last weekend in Israel, I say it again and again and again, it was the most extraordinary event to happen, arguably in the history of, of Israel since 1948. It was the largest number of Jewish people to die in a single day since the Holocaust. But tens of thousands of people dying in the Gaza Strip over the next month 
is not going to help that. And it's certainly not going to stop it happening again. Let's go back to that exchange with Grant Shapps and see where things go next. How does the UK government expect people who are elderly, sick, disabled or in hospital to move out of northern Gaza in 24 hours? Well, look, sadly, when mass went in the other way around, there there weren't any of these options. They went to just murder people. Now, the, the option for Israel is either to just ignore this and allow it to happen again or actually deal with Hamas. And, uh, you know, we think that Israel has the right to deal with Hamas. Now, uh, advance notices being um, uh, given, uh, it, it is quite right that Israel has given that advance notice. And we have made clear to Israel that it, of course, needs to act within international law and be proportionate. What is the, but there is no equivalence because Hamas don't provide the opportunities that Israel is providing Hamas don't okay, tell the, their victims before they cut the, their heads off that is, they should move. This is why it's really important to think about what is practical and possible in a place like, like Gaza. And no one who has ever been there or knows it thinks that it is possible because roads are destroyed, homes are destroyed, neighbourhoods are already flattened, people have little food, almost no fuel. And, and yet... You believe that they will all, 40,000 people an hour, will be able to move in the next 24 hours? Well, look, first of all, you're assume, assuming that everything instantly starts in 24 hours. Uh, well, that's the deadline uh, the Israeli certain, military has given. We're only going on well, what good, they're saying. It's, it, it's, it's good that they provided information in advance. And as I repeatedly said, Hamas certainly didn't do that before. They went and slaughtered people. Uh, but secondly, um, you know, it, 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 we don't know the, the detail of the Israeli plan. We do know, and President Biden uh, downwards has made it clear that Israel will need to comply to, with international law. And I would have thought a good start is to warn people in advance that the area that they're in is likely to be part of a attack uh, where they, uh, the Israelis are trying to get hold of the Hamas terrorists, who you don't seem to be particularly interested in. And the BBC seems to refuse to call terrorists, even though the British Parliament has legislated terrorists, which is a question I haven't heard the BBC answer yet. Have you not seen any of the coverage on the BBC of the atrocities, the dead, the injured, the survivors? Yes, I have. So how can you say that we're not interested in, in those atrocities? Well, I, read, I read, I think it was a very unfortunate um, uh, article, I think it was by John Simpson, explaining why... Although the British Parliament has legislated Hamas as a prescribed organisation and a terrorist, the BBC think it's not appropriate to call them terrorists. Are you aware of the Ofcom code and the rules for all broadcasters? Of course. Okay, so you'll know that the Ofcom broadcasting code requires that news in whatever form is reported with due accuracy and presented with due impartiality. Broadcasters are not the same as newspapers and indeed all UK broadcasters stick to the same language around terrorism and these groups that the BBC is. We are not unique in this. So I I think you are suggesting that whatever group is on the UK's list of prescribed groups at any time, that broadcasters should mirror that language. I think it's pretty clear. And I said, just been to NATO and seen the the evidence, seen the videos of... uh, Innocent people being beheaded, pensioners being flagged off and taken uh, as hostages. I think it's pretty clear that's terrorist activity, and I think it's pretty surprising not to hear it being called that. It's an interesting, it's an interesting debate. 
Michelle Hussain uh, is right to say that the BBC aren't alone in doing this. Ash, what did you make of this entire exchange? I, it really brought home for me two things. Firstly, the BBC on international affairs is pretty good. On domestic politics, I'm, I'm not the biggest fan, but on international affairs, it's very good. That's why it has a global audience of half a billion people. And secondly, compare the IQ and the, the perspicacity of uh, Michelle Hussain to Grant Shapps. It really is quite concerning about the calibre of our politicians, isn't it? I thought that it was very revealing when Michelle Hussein was asking, well, have you seen the images that have been coming out of Gaza? And Grant Shapps said, yes. And, you know, are you not interested in that? And then there was deflection, there was prevarication, and there was a return to these platitudes about Israel's right to defend itself. Um, because once more, just had some uh, breaking news. Médecins Sans Frontières have reported that the Al-Auda Hospital in Gaza has been given just two hours by the IDF to evacuate. Um, as we've said, there is no way to safely evacuate Gaza City at the moment, less so for a hospital full of critically ill people. There are dwindling supplies, uh, there is no fuel in Gaza, and bombs are still raining down. This is in order to evacuate a hospital of critically ill, critically injured people. And I think that it's exactly that detail that hasn't been put enough to British politicians. And you've seen in that clip the way in which Grant Shapps squirms when he's having to be confronted by some of, of the realities of what's going on in Gaza. Because you can no longer uphold this myth that what's being done by Israel is within international law, that it's proportionate, or that it falls within the right to self-defense. It is a web of lies which evaporates upon contact with any kind of reality. So I'm glad that those were the kinds of tough questions being put, put to Grant Shapps. I just wish uh, that there was more forthrightness on the part of the BBC to say things like the Norwegian Refugee Council labels what's going on as a forcible transfer, which is a crime against humanity. The BBC will say Hamas is described as a terrorist organisation by others, so it would not be a breach of impartiality to say that what's going on, the evacuation order, is being described as a forcible transfer, therefore a breach of international law and a crime against humanity. We are going to go on a little bit longer than usual. We did this also on Tuesday, I think. Uh, we'll probably be going to around 20 past seven. We've got a few more stories, so stay tuned for that. Before we go on, we've got 3,300 of you watching. If you don't already, consider supporting our work here at Navarra Media to build people-powered media. Go to navarramedia.com forward slash support. The link is in the description below. The French government has announced a ban on all protests expressing solidarity with Palestine. Despite the order, thousands of protesters gathered in Paris and other cities in France on Thursday to express their support for Palestine. These scenes were shot at the Place de la République in central Paris. Soon, police turned up to end the protest, making tenores wearing riot gear. They tried to disperse the crowds using water cannons, batons, and even tear gas grenades. Ash, can you see something like this happening in the United Kingdom, where we have the government trying to curtail the right to peaceful, lawful assembly? We're 
already seeing the government attempt to curtail peaceful, lawful assembly. That's been the nature of the legislation that they pushed through, meaning that there is an incredibly low threshold for police dispersing or criminalizing peaceful protest. And just look at what Suella Braverman's been coming out with this week. She's been talking about making it a criminal offense to wave the Palestinian flag, to make it a criminal offense to chant from the river to the sea, Palestine will be free. The uh, Conservative Party has been ramming through legislation to make it more difficult to support the boycott, divestment and sanctions movement. And that's before you get to, I think, a media campaign to pick on individuals who are tweeting, who are posting things which are supportive of Palestinian rights, indeed the Palestinian right to resistance and holding them up as public hate figures. That is sort of incorporated into this wider moral panic around left-wing anti-Semitism. And what do you call that if not a government and wider than the government, uh, a political class backlash against free expression and peaceful protest? I do hope that the protests which are planned tomorrow uh, remain peaceful. And what that relies on is a lack of police provocation and antagonism as well. You and I, Aaron, have been on protests uh, all our lives, really. And we've seen that quite often when you see media images of uh, aggressive protesters, that what's led up to that is often hours and hours and hours of police antagonism sometimes police violence. So I do hope that the police understand that is their job to facilitate peaceful protest and not to try and turn it into something which is more hostile. So there's Emmanuel Macron banning displays of Palestinian solidarity. And our own political leaders appear to support Israel's bombardment and blockade of Gaza. But another senior politician has shown more courage. Take a look at this interview with Ireland's Taoiseach, Leo Varadka. What would you say to her about what's happening in Gaza at the moment, the bombardment, the blockade? Is it proportionate to the response? Well, I believe Israel has the right to defend itself, uh, but Israel doesn't have the right to do wrong. Um, what do I mean by that? Uh, Israel is a country that is surrounded by enemies, uh, brutal, savage groups like Hamas and Hezbollah, um, countries like Iran, um, often supported by um, Islamic fundamentalists and anti-Semites around the world. So Israel is under threat. Uh, they do have a right to defend themselves, but they don't have the right to breach international humanitarian law. Uh, and I'm really concerned about what I'm seeing happening in Gaza at the moment. Uh, to me, it amounts to collective punishment, uh, cutting off power, um, cutting off uh, fuel supplies and water supplies. Um, that's not the way a respectable democratic state should conduct itself. So do you think they are breaching fundamental law? I, I, I believe by targeting civilians and by cutting off civilian infrastructure, that is a breach of international humanitarian law. And I think it's very important for us as Ireland uh, to make sure that that voice is brought to the table at European Union level. Uh, so yes, uh, Hamas should release all of the hostages immediately. Uh, Israeli citizens and dual citizens alike. Uh, Israel is entirely justified in uh, going after Hamas uh, in Gaza and elsewhere. Um, but operations that clearly uh, affect 
civilians disproportionately uh, are wrong. Cutting off electricity, cutting off water, um, that's not acceptable. And one thing we definitely need to see happen now, uh, and we'll do anything we can through the UN to achieve this, is the opening of a humanitarian corridor between Egypt and Gaza. Ash, I've got a question for you. Why is common sense so rare with Westminster politicians? And yet you look at Mark Drakeford, they have their problems at the moment, but in recent years, the SNP have been you know, competent politicians who can present a reasonable face to the world. You look at Scotland, you look at Ireland, um, you know, he, this gentleman is not on the left, he comes from a centre-right party historically. And it, it feels like, you know, these are all, all countries or nations in our near abroad, and yet they possess a, a composure and an intelligence we simply don't see from Westminster politicians. I think the reason for that is that Westminster politics and Washington politics have been pretty substantively impacted by a project by Israeli advocates, by lobbyists for the Israeli states. Now, I'm not saying that in a sort of conspiratorial Israel lobby kind of way. There are lobbyists for Saudi Arabia. There are lobbyists for Turkey. Um, Israel has its advocates and its lobbyists who work to try and shift political opinion and political policy uh, overseas, like many other states also do. But it's been the project of Israeli advocates, Israeli lobbyists, and pro-Israel uh, you know, civil society organizations to make it really difficult to factually describe what Israel is doing and to create a climate in which it is near impossible to push back on Israel's repeated breaches of international law. So I'm not just talking about uh, this most recent crisis, but the ongoing illegal occupation, the de facto apartheid, which has been identified by Amnesty International, uh, and the ongoing blockade of Gaza. What's happened, particularly in England, Westminster, and Washington, has been a concerted attempt to make criticism of Israel, legitimate criticism of Israel, to tar it with the brush of anti-Semitism. I believe uh, that that's what the IHRA definition of anti-Semitism attempts to do. You've got this hugely broad definition and 11 examples, most of which concern what people can or can't say about the state of Israel. And, you know, Kinds of lawfare like that have been really successful in the Westminster context. It's been a bit less successful in the Washington context, but still it is remarkably influential. And I think because you haven't had um, the phenomenon of Jeremy Corbyn being attacked with the accusation of anti-Semitism in Scotland that's not been a part of Irish politics, it means that the centre-right and the centre-left can uphold, I think, some quite basic standards of liberalism, which is that attacks on civilians, collective punishment, breaches of international law are wrong. And it's a sign of how captured our institutional centre-left has been in this country that it is impossible to imagine Keir Starmer or the Labour front bench saying anything like what the centre-right Leo Varadkar is saying. I think when it comes to 
the SNP. The SNP is obviously a very, very broad coalition ranging from so-called Tartan Tories uh, to people who would describe themselves as socialists. Hamza Youssef has been, you know, more on the progressive end of his party. And also, I think it is really meaningful that he has family that's currently trapped in Gaza. I think that when you know that there are people who you love trapped in that situation, you have no choice but to recognize for recognize their humanity and to advocate for the recognition of their humanity. But that's not a set of experiences which is widely shared on the Labour front bench and also the Labour front bench is scared of being attacked with the same moral panic that Jeremy Corbyn was. This is a brilliant story, so stay tuned. We'll be going for another 20 minutes probably tonight, but this is a brilliant, instructive story, exemplifying so much. Jake Wallace-Simons is the editor of the oldest Jewish newspaper in the world, The Jewish Chronicle. He's also the author of the book Israelophobia, the newest version of the oldest hatred and what to do about it. He has appeared on this week's BBC Question Time, no surprise there, given his research interests and his job. But not everyone was happy about that, and that's because of a tweet that Wallace Simons wrote and subsequently deleted last weekend. We need to face reality. Much of Muslim culture is in the grip of a death cult that sacralizes bloodshed. Not all, but many Muslims are brainwashed by it. That is a big part of the problem. That was immediately criticized online. Here's one response from MSNBC's Mehdi Hassan. This is the editor of the Jewish Chronicle in the UK, making some pretty sickening and sweeping Islamophobic remarks about Muslims globally. Change the words Muslim and Muslims to Jewish and Jews, and recognize how offensive and bigoted his remarks are. And another criticism came from conservative peer Saida Warsi, who explicitly questioned why Simons was being invited on by the BBC. Why would, at BBC Question Time, give airtime to Jake? You've had all the details of the vile, bigoted comments he made, and he acknowledged as such by deleting. Why, in the midst of such high tensions, are divisive voices considered appropriate for what should be balanced political debates? Now, speaking personally, I have no problems with Mr. Simons appearing on Question Time, provided, of course, that he's questioned about that tweet. Unfortunately, that's precisely what happened. It has come to my attention, a tweet that you put out just a few days ago, which you then deleted, which has offended many as Islamophobic and, and has used terms I actually can't actually repeat here on this programme. So I want to ask you, do you still stand by it or do you apologise for it? The problem is that they've been brainwashed by these jihadi fanatics. That's, that is what I said. That is what I said. I said they were brainwashed. No, 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 no. I said they were brainwashed. I said brainwashed. I have the tweet brainwashed by a death cult and i said most i said so many but not all and i you stand said by much that. of muslim and culture me, is a death cult i did that's what you said those I are didn't. the exact words well let, let's, quoting the tweet i didn't let's let him answer thank you but what i would say is that that's that's untrue but what i would add is that people got cross about it and i understand that i did delete it i did delete it because uh, tempers are so high and i didn't want and i'm What I, will say, what I will say is that um, I stand by the, 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 the point that these jihadis are brainwashing elements of society. But if you're offended, sir, and if I've offended other people with a clumsy wording, I certainly apologise for that. I want to okay. be friends and allies, okay. not enemies. I didn't. I didn't. Just a reminder before we go on, this is a newspaper 
editor. And he's being presented with something he himself has written, but he's actually unable to admit what he said. Just own up, man. We all make mistakes. If uh, making mistakes was an Olympic sport, I'd be the love child of Steve Redgrave and Laura Kenny. Don't literally deny you've written something when someone is quoting it to you. And as I'll repeat, he did say precisely that. The gentleman repeated what he said. Much of Muslim culture is in the grip of a death cult. He said that, and he said, I didn't, I didn't. Now, Simon's response is particularly strange, given such an awful, gruesome thing happened in Israel last weekend, something which any sensible person would understand led him to losing a sense of perspective and saying something perhaps he doesn't believe. Or perhaps, and this is the really concerning thing, maybe he does, only we don't know since he won't admit to saying what he actually said. It's a really concerning issue for me. Uh, the fact that this gentleman is an editor at a national newspaper, and he's able to lie so brazenly with such ease is utterly extraordinary. And I think it tells you something quite significant about the media in this country. And before I go on, Jake Simons was the individual responsible for a plethora of stories related to Jeremy Corbyn and to Labour. And as a journalist, you cannot scrutinize politicians if you yourself aren't honest about who you are and what you do. You cannot. You lose credibility. And what I find particularly frustrating is that there, on BBC Question Time, that the host, Fiona Bruce, didn't challenge him. You're being challenged on something you said. You're saying you didn't say it. I find it, I find it really extraordinary and so instructive of so many problems in politics and media in this country. We'll go on to this evening's final story. It's widely known that Labour staff has worked against the elected party leadership to lose the 2017 general election. We certainly know that here at Navarra Media. After all, we broke the Labour leak story. Among other things, that story revealed a WhatsApp group involving the party's then general secretary, the top dog, Ian McNichol, who was seemingly helping to coordinate a parallel election operation and was crestfallen when Labour increased their vote share by 10%. Here are the details of that conversation, first revealed by Navarra Media three years ago. Julie Lawrence, Patrick, if anyone in the war room needs some safe space time, they can come to GSO, General Secretary's Office. Tracy Allen, more like in need of counselling. Remember, people, this is when Labour increased their vote share by 10%. Emily Oldno, what's the atmosphere like there? Depends which side of the building. Uh, Simon Mills, split between euphoria and shock. We are stunned and reeling. They are cheering, as in people who wanted Labour to win because they work for Labour. They are cheering and we are silent and grey-faced, opposite to what I've been working towards the last couple of years. Wow. These people are on the Labour payroll. Crazy. Emily Oldno, one of the most senior figures in the party at the time. We have to be upbeat and not show it. But there's more. At least we have loads of money now. Julie Lawrence, not if we go into coalition and lose short money. Julie Lawrence, her job is paid for by Labour Party staffers doesn't want Labour to go into government. Julie Lawrence, Steve, more on him in a moment, walking the floor. Emily Oldno, oh no. Patrick Hennigan, again, a senior Labour figure. Everyone needs to smile. I'm going into the room of death. Everyone needs to be very upbeat. Julie Lawrence, it's hard, but yes. Ian McNichol, I'm not in smiling and mixing and doing the second floor. Ian McNichol, the General Secretary of the Labour Party, and now a Labour Lord. Everyone else needs to do the same. It's going to be a long night.
It's going to be a long night. We've taken a majority away from the Conservative Party. It's going to be a long night. Awful. What a tragedy. Now, after we published that piece in 2020, we here at Navarra Media were called all kinds of names by pundits and commentators who politically disagree with us. Of course, the Labour bureaucracy wasn't really trying to lose the election. They only wrote it down. Why would you think such a thing? It's just an internal WhatsApp group letting off some steam. Yeah, they were letting off steam because Labour had just taken the Tories' majority away. Well, now we know that's not the case because Labour's head of elections at the time, Harry Burns, told GB News this. I was uh, head of elections for the 2017 general election campaign when uh, Labour were very far behind the Tories at the start of the campaign. Um, my job was very clear, save as many Labour MPs as possible. Uh, then when it became clear that Corbyn was getting close to government, I, along with a lot of my other colleagues, resigned. Uh, I left the Labour Party and then I tried to uh, do everything I can to bring Corbyn down. Unfortunately for everyone, he is no longer a Labour MP. I did everything I could to bring Corbyn down. This is the man who claims to have run Labour's election campaign in 2017. Indeed, elsewhere, he even tries to take credit for that result. A little uh, snout here at Navarra Media managed to find Mr. Burns' LinkedIn page. Here it is. He says on that LinkedIn page, I spent a decade working in UK politics, serving as head of elections and campaign support for the UK Labour Party for the 2017 general election, playing an integral role in delivering one of the most unexpected election results in recent times. So on LinkedIn, he's saying he played a crucial role in Labour doing so well. But on TV, who knows how much they're paying him? He's saying, I wanted Labour to do terribly. Uh, of course, it's worth asking precisely what he was doing during the 2017 election, given the strange tension. After leaving Labour, Burns proceeded to join Change UK. That's also on his LinkedIn page, though quite wise anyone's guess. It's akin to working in events and saying, I did PR for Fire Festival, give me a job. Nobody sensible would do that. Uh, also, how is this guy allowed to be back in Labour? He's rejoined the Labour Party. And he can still go on national TV admitting he did all he could to stop Labour coming to power, but now he's back in. He also joined a, a rival party too, but he can rejoin. Can you imagine? If you were even on the Labour right, if you're an MP, and you lost your seat by 100 votes in 2017, he's cost you your seat. And he's back at the party, open arms. See, you're allowed to do these things if you're on the Labour right, but if you're on the left, you've probably heard of people being kicked out of the party because they retweeted the Greens, or perhaps they had the temerity to like a tweet by Nicola Sturgeon saying she'd recovered from COVID. Naughty you. If only you'd done something less dangerous, like trying to stop the party actually form a government. Uh, lastly, there was this from Steve Howell, who did actually play a prominent role in the 2017 general election. I've checked with other senior members of Jeremy Corbyn's team, and no one recognizes Harry Burns. He claims to have been, quote, head of elections, but he wasn't in any of our joint meetings with party officials. Either he was fairly junior or in an undercover role at Ergon House. So either he's a, a Walter Mitty-style character, or he was working on what was effectively a parallel election campaign, which the then Labour leadership didn't know about. That is also one of the charges we level in our piece uh, from three years ago. Apparently, that was also not great journalism. Nobody wants to follow up. Not the BBC, not The Guardian, nobody cared. Here is an open admission by someone on television that they were working on an election campaign they wanted to lose, which I think undermines our entire democratic system. Anybody watching who wants to support our work, we're trying to gain 5,000 new supporters before the end of 2023. 
we want to be campaign ready for 2024. We want to really shape British politics in the short to medium term. And that's going to really happen in a general election campaign. And of course, during events such as the horrific um, sequence of events that we've seen in Israel-Palestine over the last week, to help us do that, there's a link in the description. Go to navarramedia.com forward slash support. Help build a people-powered media. Take the power away from the billionaires and put it into your own hands. Uh, thank you, everyone, for watching this evening. Downstream with Ash uh, will be out at 6 p.m. on Sunday. I believe this week's interviews with Gary Young. So catch up with that. I can't wait personally. This show will be back on Monday night. For now, you've been watching Navarra Media. Good night. This broadcast is brought to you by Navarra Media. Go to navaramedia.com support.